Hello and welcome to Property Matters on Dublin South FM. As regular listeners might know, Property Matters actually took a break for August and instead of our usual show, we travelled along the West Coast to meet and interview some of Ireland's PropTech founders and investors. You can catch up on that summer special series on iPropertyRadio.com. As always, you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Tallon, and I'm delighted to be joined remotely by CEO of IPAV and regular guest of the show, Pat Davitt. Pat, thank you for joining us today. Hello, Carol. How are you? I hope good, well. Uh, good, good. Uh, Pat, it's been a couple of months since we spoke and obviously, obviously since the first week of June, your members are pretty much uh, back up and running. So I suppose before we get into the report that IPAV has recently published, let's start by just seeing how are your members faring since, um, since I suppose their businesses reopened to the public in June? Yeah, it was um, obviously we were most of the offices were locked up for 12 to 13 weeks and uh, putting the protocol together with both the property services regulator and the SESI was a huge help to get us back up and running and got us back up and running good and early as well, which is very good because we put a lot of work in behind the scenes into the protocol when probably not a lot of people were working on a protocol. So that we got in and got the Department of Housing on board and we didn't get in in the first let off of the, the first opening of the housing of the, of, the, of the offices, but we did with the second one. So we've been up and running now for about a little bit over two months. And it's, um, it's, it's very, I suppose, very strange for most people because while offices are open and, and, and people are still in and out, but the social distance in the offices uh, is is a huge matter, I'd say, for a lot of people, and the safety of their employees, I think, is is of primary importance to them. And keeping them safe and keeping them safe on an ongoing basis, I think, a lot of people thought in the beginning, you know, that this was just it was going to be simple and go back to work and everything would be okay. But when you have staff and you have them mixing and doing appointments and uh, looking at properties for sale and thinking of sellings and everything like that. There's a risk every day with employees and employers are very, very much aware of that. So that the protocol that we've built, even though we've changed it slightly since we actually put it together only in the past three or four weeks, we've changed it. But uh, and it only and we only changed that around about a few weeks to make viewings a little bit more simple to do and a little bit better to do. Uh, but other than that, the protocol has been working good. Um, and there are many reports of, of COVID in any of the offices, which is great. You know, so it's all working quite well, I think. That's great. Um, Pat, I actually wasn't aware that there was a change to the protocols in recent weeks um, in terms of viewings. So what changes were implemented? Um, up to uh, about four weeks ago, you uh, children of under 16 years of age, you weren't allowing them into houses. So we changed that and we have no age limit there now for children. So if somebody, we found that a lot of people wanted to bring their children. Uh, some children obviously make decisions on housing. And it's important to have them there that they can see the house. But also some parents are not able, like maybe they can't get somebody to mind their child or whatever the case may be. And they have to come to a viewing with them. And if they can't bring the child into the house, well, then they have to leave with somebody else. And they don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So that We changed the protocol around about to do that to facilitate it. And we also changed it to facilitate if somebody comes to view a property and they want to bring their parents or their parents-in-law or something with them, that we will allow four people now to view the property at one time with 
uh, an auctioneer as opposed to two before. So it leaves things a little bit better and a little bit easier for agents to view properties. And I think for people coming to view them as well, I think it leaves things a little bit better and easier as well. OK, that's that's a great development. And, you know, one of the things I've commented on it before um, over the, the past two months, but um, actually I, there's been a tremendous effort by estate agencies up and, around, up and down the country to really make this work for both buyers and sellers. And that's taken a huge amount of effort. In fact, only in the last four weeks, I've been out on the road myself back um, actually calling into uh, estate agencies that we would work with, say, on a digital transformation side of things. And, you know, it really what we've seen is that um, this almost feels like an extension to uh, changes that were already very much um, happening and almost being enforced on estate agencies and auctioneering uh, practices all around the country. You know, there was already huge change happening in terms of uh, adapting to change in consumer demands and adapting to how buyers and sellers want to to consume property. Um, there had already been so many changes in terms of taking much of the practices online that realistically, I think that um, firms were much more ready for this than they might have been if this had struck four years ago. You know, is that a fair assessment? I think it's. I think it's a very fair assessment, and I suppose the online is one thing, um, and that definitely has been improvement. Uh, a lot of agents would have properties and uh, videos online and visual viewings that you can do uh, on the property. Um, and I think that's one side of it. There's no no doubt about that. But still, a lot of people are still coming to estate agents' offices. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people still want to view, and the whole sort of 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 uh, of process of agents having to go round in houses after a viewing and uh, cleaning all the taps and the and the kitchen tops and the door handles and that before another person comes to view, or refusing people to view a property that haven't been uh, in Ireland for 14 days or that have had COVID and aren't isolating properly. Uh, it's a whole new thing for agents. But unfortunately, they have to do that and they have to do it. I think they see themselves now in the beginning. I think this maybe agents didn't see that, but I think they see it now themselves that they have to protect themselves and their staff. And also people that come into view, they have a responsibility there to protect them as well. Of but course. Of the software and all that. Uh, that's there for auctions online um, and the, the the bidding process and especially the bidding process like there's been a huge change in March and the selling of cattle even the selling of cars and the selling of fine arts and everything there's been huge huge changes there which uh, has been brought about by COVID but which now has been taken on board by the agents and uh, a lot of them are working very well with it and find it's very very good and find that they can still do business it's amazing what you can do when you when you have to do it and you have to keep your business open. It's amazing what you can do. Yeah, you know, look, survival, survival seems to be um, kind of hot-wired into the property industry. I, I think that, you know, when we talk about the recovery from the crash a decade ago, I think that sometimes there's a lack of appreciation that, you know, the recovery really hadn't happened nationwide. So, in fact, there was still 
areas and parts of the country that were playing catch up that never recovered um, to the same extent and that have been under pressure almost consistently for the past 10 or 12 years. And, you know, when when they when the in-person element of the business was shut down there for almost two months, you know, we, we saw predictions like from KBC Bank saying that there could be a price drop of uh, as much as 20 percent. And that was that was terrifying because we know that for many agencies, they were just about holding on before this and they just wouldn't have been in a position. You know, resilience is one thing, but there are some harsh market realities that just don't allow uh, a low margin business, which a state agency is, you know, to take this kind of a hit. Um, And yet everything we're seeing over the past six weeks is saying that actually all of those predictions really they they weren't the reality that we saw. And I think you summed it up really well in a quote you gave to the Sunday Independent this weekend. You said all the things that people thought would happen in lockdown didn't happen. And I thought that that is the that's it in a nutshell. So I, I suppose can you can you actually talk us through the report that IPAV has just published because it's a really interesting one in terms of getting a gauge on the market um, in urban and rural areas. Yeah, I suppose the the um, what people were talking about and the decrease and everything like that. I'd say a lot of people felt that because COVID and because offices were closed that this was going to happen, but we knew from behind the scenes what was actually happening that people wanted to go back to own properties, that they were only waiting to do it. And one of the first webinars that I did, which was which was before the end of March, I said, when we get all get back to work, there's going to be a pent-up demand for properties because of the fact that people haven't been doing. And that was exactly it. But a lot of people were talking about prices that didn't actually know what was happening behind the scenes and didn't appreciate what was happening behind the scenes. Uh, like, there was no reason for the property prices to fall because properties are still scarce. They're in short supply. Interest rates are still very low. Uh, so that if you end there, plenty of buyers out there and not afraid to buy properties and wanting to buy properties and now even more so wanting to buy properties. Because, again, in the report today in The Independent, what I've said, and one of the big things that we have found is that Irish people now are finding Ireland a safe place to buy a property, a second home if they want, or a safe place to buy a property. And European buyers that are coming back that may or may not have some Irish allegiance or some Irish heritage. Uh, are now looking at Ireland as being a very safe place to buy a property. So people that were spending their money in Spain and in Portugal, and the great thing, you know, one of the big things was flying to get there, you know, and it was all a big sort of a trail and everything like that. Now there's so much more hassle than flying, even in driving from A to B now. Mm-hmm. But with driving or with flying now, there's so many problems and so much danger of maybe getting some sort of a disease or something from it that people are finding that, look, we have this in our backyard. So if we want to get out of the city of Dublin or Limerick or we want to get out of uh, Mullingar and we want to go to Dublin, we want to go for a weekend or whatever, it's much better to buy a property at home and have it, you know the laws, you know the rules, you know the regulations and, and all that. But moving on to the report, the report is done on the basis of them. Um, we use the same uh, uh, amount of people, 111 uh, people we use for the report right throughout the country and we use the same people all of the time. Uh, for this report since we've launched about four years ago. So we launch it every six months. It's the IPEF property price barometer. And we do it in three types of property, which is a three-bedroom semi, a four-bedroom semi, and a two-bedroom apartment. And then, apart from looking at the three property prices together, we look at the three of them cumulatively, And then we also look at the price per square metre of all of those properties. So that it gives people 
It doesn't go through the whole of the property types in Ireland, but it gives people a huge flair for properties because most people speak about property. And when they speak about property prices, they speak about a, a three bedroom semi. So a three bedroom semi, there's one in every town or every every village, every 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 city in Ireland. So it's easy to compare the prices from one place to another with them. Okay. Um, so we found that prices generally um, have been have been very resilient and have held up exceptionally well. There are some areas where they have held up a lot better than others. Some areas that have been got huge increases and, well, I should say huge increases, quite large increases. And some areas that have had some small falls, but not an awful lot. I think there is about 60% more areas with increases than there are with decreases. But overall, with those three types of properties in the first six months of the year, we estimate that the property prices have fallen by approximately 0.7%. Now, I know somebody would look at this and say 0.7%. How in the God would you work out 0.7%? But when we put all the figures together at the back end, mm-hmm. uh, P-Tools, which is a, rec- which is a recognisable uh, uh, company, which put the, 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 the barometer together for us, they put all the figures together and obviously come up with this. And while it's a figure, that's all it is because you couldn't really price a property on the basis of uh, a decrease of 0.7%. But some of the bigger areas, I suppose, are the bigger price increases. And, and I suppose that's, I go through them first because auctioneers love to hear price increases. But uh, some of the bigger ones are um, where I live myself in Westmead, uh, prices there are up 5.17% on three bedroom semis. In um, Monaghan, which again, a lot of country properties have been up and up considerably. That's Um, an interesting one because it's following the trends that we saw in the UK almost exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, the the one where the county Cork is up, but actually the city of Cork is is up very slightly. Like it's only up a half percent where the county of Cork is up nearly six percent. Um, so that again, it's county regions. But if you take Cork in, in, in particular, if you take West Cork and you take properties there, if our barometer was looking at prices of property in West Cork uh, or with water views or water areas, any of those type of areas, I'd say the property prices could be up by 10 and 15 percent in some of those areas. They're up hugely because you just can't buy a property there at the moment between Irish people, between uh, foreigners coming there. It's, it's practically impossible to buy properties. And auctioneers are exceptionally busy in those areas. And uh, the supply, though, is a, is a really big issue because what we know is that um, a, a number of vendors who might have been considering putting their home on the market didn't um, or have put their their home, if it was on the market, you know, they, they put matters on hold for a while. So in terms of uh, secondhand properties, we know there's a delay in stock coming to the market, but also in terms of new homes, you know, we know that there's a knock-on effect uh, as a result of the construction shutdown and all of the reports, which again, we hope are going to prove to be overly pessimistic, but all of the reports are showing that uh, the likely loss in productivity as a result of the shutdown and um, as a result of, you know, implementing COVID-19 safety measures measures on site, we could be looking at a loss of productivity for the construction house building sector of anywhere between uh, 33 and 40 percent, which is huge. And, you know, we already know that there's no way that even the targets set under Rebuilding Ireland are going to be met in terms of new homes delivery. So I I, I suppose what are your members doing? Because I would imagine from speaking to estate agents around the country, what they're telling me is that 
and they're selling properties uh, faster. They're selling them to both mortgaged and cash buyers. They're selling them to remote buyers. And um, but there is there doesn't seem to be the new stock, either new homes, uh, newly built homes available, or secondhand homes coming to the market. So you know, is there some messaging that needs to happen to tell? to tell potential vendors or would-be vendors, actually, this is a good time to be bringing your property to the market? Um, I think I think there is a message there and I think there is message that needs to be done. But I think a lot of the, the problem seems to be with people who are wanting to sell second-hand homes that the chances of them moving into a new home is, is, is slim and less than what it should be because the fact that exactly as you say that the the construction of new homes has slowed down considerably because of the COVID and not alone has it slowed down but it also has prices have increased and COVID has increased prices um, and while they were practically at the top of the market or, or at the top of the affordability of the market for a lot of people before COVID now there's an added extra put on top of them because of the COVID um, so that it, it is causing it is causing problems in the marketplace from that but then again the houses aren't available either so that is is further causing problems and further causing delays and a lot of people like they sell their house but they have nowhere to go if they do sell it because they could be they could either be trading up or trading to a new a new property and that is a that that is the problem so I suppose it is good it's a good time for people to put the property in the market because properties are selling exceptionally well. But at the same time, I think the supply and demand on the second-hand homes is is a big problem. Uh, it's, there's a lot more people there to buy them. A lot of the younger people that are that are uh, looking up mortgages, it's it's more difficult for them to buy second-hand homes. But they're the closest property that they can buy to get into a home. They can't afford to buy a new three-bedroom semi. If you look mm-hmm. at any of the towns in Ireland, you're looking at probably the best part of between probably 230, 240, maybe even as far as 300,000 for a new three-bedroom semi, maybe 1,150 square feet or 1,200 square feet. And that's a lot of money for people who, for young people who maybe aren't earning as much money as they uh, would be able to get a mortgage in that property. So hence, um, second-hand homes are the ones, they're not near as expensive as that. And we've been asking the government over uh, two terms now, two budgets, and we'll be asking them again in the next one, to give some of the first-hand buyers grant to second-hand purchasers, uh, uh, second-hand properties for first-hand purchasers. Because again, it gives them a little bit of a help and it gives them a little bit of a leg up. And those type of properties are available in the marketplace at the moment, those first-hand buyers uh, homes in second-hand properties. But because of the mortgages the way they are, and they are difficult enough to get mortgages, um, even at the moment, it's difficult for them to get into buying a property, even at those levels. Yeah, and Pat, I think that's a that's a very fair assessment in terms of the supply situation. And I think it's definitely indicative of what we're seeing on the demand side. But I mean, if we if we drill down in terms of the demand, we know that there are people who at the start of the year were in a great position and might have been ready to buy a property. And then due to COVID-19, um, they may have been furloughed or uh, may have been in receipt of COVID payments or through their employer. You know, 
how how is that kind of demand going to fare um, in terms of access to mortgages? Because at the moment we're seeing a pent up demand, and as I said, when I when I speak to estate agents, they're telling me that it's from both uh, mortgaged and home buyers. But um, you know, I, I spoke with a number of re- uh, regional estate agents, and they've given me figures of between sixty and seventy percent of their purchases at the moment are cash purchases now. You know, we can understand that that might account for some of the the pent up demand. And so those people are are sitting and ready and maybe weren't so impacted by by the pandemic and the effects of that. But in terms of people who in January would have been in a good position to get a mortgage and because their employment position has changed, may not be now. You know, are you seeing much of that or that cohort of potential buyer being lost in the market? Yeah, we're seeing some of it, but not not a huge amount of it. Uh, as you say, and what has been happening in the marketplace is there are a lot more cash buyers back in the market. I think in the height of 2000 and uh, probably 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, or maybe even 13, at the height of that, there could have been 60% of purchases, uh, people buying properties without a mortgage and no needing for a mortgage. And I think that went down to about maybe 25 to 30%, and it has gone down to that sort of figure. But it definitely is back up again. And I think when the figures are done on it for up to the end of June, we'll find that that figure has probably risen to about up to 40%. And that would be a huge figure again in the marketplace because a lot of people in Ireland still have money to buy properties. A lot of people coming into Ireland from other countries have money to buy properties. And they're not dependent on mortgages to get them. Now, those cohort of people that you're speaking about, it's very difficult for them because of the fact that uh, their their wages have been affected or their terms of employment has been affected because of COVID. I think if they're not secure in their job, uh, the banks are looking at them that, well, OK, when you get a secure job, come back and speak to us. But other ones that uh, have been, haven't been affected, that they've only been affected because their, their employer has taken the COVID payments, uh, those type of ones that have gone back to work, we have been saying to the banks, and I think the banks now are treating them slightly different. Mm-hmm. They're actually allowing them to buy properties and they're allowing them to give them mortgages once they're able to see that their terms of employment or their wages haven't been changed. And again, this is something that the banks, I think, took a a sort of a view on this from everybody's point of view, that everybody was tired of the same brush. And that is not the case. And banks have now, I think, been looking at it, as they say themselves, on a one to one basis, which is which is good from that point of view. And it gives those people that are going back to work now and they're earning the same amount of money as they were. And uh, their wages haven't been affected. The opportunity to get a mortgage and to get on that property ladder. Yeah. yeah look, obviously, we hope that there will be something a little more creative uh, put in place in in the upcoming budget that will actually reflect the position of people like that, particularly those who continue to be in a rental situation where we're seeing actually continued. Uh, rental increases during over this period. So, um, you know, now that we're judging figures against last year's, we can see that rental is slightly up again. So the, these are the positions that are, these are the people who are putting in a particularly difficult position. So obviously we're hoping that there will be some consideration there in, in budget 2021. And um, Pat, before we let you go, one final thing, as you were speaking about the, the launch of this IPAV report, which by the way, makes for some really interesting reading. There's a great breakdown. Um, so I, I would definitely recommend anybody uh, up, who's interested in property anywhere in the country to take a look and get the price figures uh, breakdown. It's a fantastic resource. Um, but just one of the things you mentioned is that in your opinion, there, there are um, 
300,000 too few properties in the yeah. market. Um, so that tallies with uh, the report that was just issued earlier, uh, just at the end of last week by the Irish Home Builders Association. And, uh, you know, they, they're predicting or forecasting demand for uh, 36,000 new homes every year for the next 20 years. Um, so I, realistically, realistically, where do you think that that supply is going to come from? 300,000 homes. Well, um, I think it, it's at the moment, the, a lot of the problem is that people um, haven't over the past number of years that wanted to buy properties, haven't been able to buy properties. And I think that's putting pressure on the system. Um, and those people that I'm speaking about are people who weren't able to get mortgages, that the property market had moved on a, a little bit further than where they were able to afford to get mortgages. And I'm speaking mostly about the country areas here. I'm not speaking about the city. Mm-hmm. So if you take an average wage in the country, you're talking about probably 40, 45,000. And you're talking about getting three and a half times that in a mortgage, which really gives you about 140 or 150,000. And you won't buy any sort of a property, a reasonable property for that type of money. So the government and the central bank really needs to look at the lower paid as to how they intend to get them into the property market. And the only way they can get them in is to increase that level from three and a half to four and a half times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that will allow them to air, to borrow or to borrow more money. I'm aware of that. Um, but at the end of the day, they're still paying less for the mortgage than they would for the rental that you were speaking about a couple of minutes ago, Carol, because those rental prices have gone up. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But I remember sitting on, on, on a programme with somebody during the last recession about to, well, before it started in 2005 or 2006 mm. and they said there was a need for 93,000 houses per year. And I think in 2006 and maybe 2005, maybe 2006 and maybe even in 2007, there were 90 or 93,000 houses built per year. And when we got into the recession the last time, we were told that there was 300,000 houses too many. And lo and behold, a couple of years later, we're looking at 300,000 houses too little. And I think that that is where it is at the moment, because there is a huge demand for properties at the moment. And that our property prices are staying up. The new houses, obviously, the houses are going to have to come from new housing. There's going to be there's no doubt about that. But the problem with new. The cost of the new housing and people that can afford to buy it. Because there's not much point in buying or building houses in a lot of the country areas, the ones that you're talking about that you visited along the Atlantic Way. There's not much point in building new houses in those areas of 300,000 when nobody can afford to buy mm-hmm. them. So something is going to have to happen on the pricing. Either the pricing, we're going to build, have to build smaller houses, but we're going to have, have to have the price of houses somewhere between 200, 250, 260,000 instead of 250 to maybe 320 or 30,000 because people just can't afford to buy them. So maybe builders are going to build a different type of house. Maybe they're looking at building uh, more per acre or something like that if they build lower type of housing uh, or lower, uh, uh, smaller type of housings. But whatever is going to have to happen, that price is going to have to be in a position that people who are earning a normal wage can afford to buy them. And I think the House Builders Association and the CAF need to look at that very seriously. And planners, I think, in counties and and throughout the country need to look at that because if we're going to build houses, we need to build them that the ordinary man on the street can buy them or woman on the street can buy them. Uh, If we don't, I think we're we're we're, we're, we're going down the road of building houses that people won't be able to afford to buy and we'll be sitting looking at them, uh, maybe there that no one can buy or else that. Uh, we'll be. We won't have them at all because builders won't buy them if they can't get people to. If they can't get people to buy them, they won't yeah. buy them. No, that, that, that's a very fair assessment. And you know, it seems that time and time again, 
Um, the affordability seems to be the nut we just can't crack here. So I, I, I don't even know. I don't even know. Uh, there is no such thing as a silver bullet for this. We know that. But I'm not sure if this current government actually have the willingness to really take on the suite of changes that would be needed um, to even try impact on affordability. But that feels like a larger conversation for another day. So we leave it there for now. My thanks again to Pat David, CEO of IPAB. We need to take a quick break. Stay tuned. 93.9 Dublin South FM. And welcome back to uh, Property Matters on Dublin South FM. You can get in contact with the show on iPropertyRadio.com. And um, also now we're joined by Karen Muldowney, Business Manager of Shaporji Palonji, Ireland and the UK, to talk about the construction sector as we're easing back into kind of a, a new season, as it were. Uh, Karen, obviously, you've been on the show before talking about the launch of Shaporji Palonji in Ireland. Um, so you're very welcome and thank you for joining us today. Hi, Carol. How are you? It's great to catch up. It's been far too long. Yeah, no, absolutely. It has been a long six, seven months. And, you know, really what I'm what I'm interested in knowing, because Shaporji Palonji was quite new, relatively new into the Irish market, um, you know, as in within the last two years, how have your projects on the ground been impacted over the last number of months? Um, well, we have two projects in Dublin at the moment. Um, and I suppose, fortunately for us, both projects, the, the stages that they were at, um, we were very lucky. Um, we tried to keep business as usual, give us an opportunity to tweak processes and procedures. Obviously, we had to shut down the sites during the lockdown. But as I said, fortunately, the stages we were at and the forms, of te- uh, forms and techniques of construction meant that we only required a few people on site. So we had Fox Rock, um, that form of construction is quite a new form of construction. It's ICF, which is insulated concrete formwork. Um, and it's, it's very similar to Lego. Uh, it fits together using kind of interlocking blocks um, of expanded polystyrene. And then it's like permanent shuttering uh, where, where concrete is poured. So it lends itself um, for less cranage on site Um health and safety wise uh, the risks of personal injury are lower there's less traffic on site less personnel which I suppose really we we didn't know at the time but it's certainly a noteworthy advantage while trying to so- social distance um, there's there's less waste on site and um, less site noise so it was a very um, lucky choice of construction that we chose and uh, lent itself well during this time Okay, and that, that's an interesting one because actually, you know, we've covered different methods of modern construction and uh, modular and offsite construction, but we haven't really discussed uh, an ICF project before. So actually, that's a really interesting one. And, I, you know, perhaps another day we might actually take you through some of the mechanics of that, you know, for people who might be considering um, this type of construction, that, but haven't maybe been exposed to it in a project. The project in Fox Rock, um, what's the nature of that project? That is eight four-storey townhouses. So they're large townhouses. Uh, each uh, unit would have a lift-in. Um, they're beautiful four-storey townhouses now um, built just across from the gables there in the village of Fox Rock. Fantastic location. Yeah, fabulous. Okay, and um, actually one of the other things that we've been we've really been talking about is not just the impact of projects on the ground, um, 
but there's there's a couple of elements. There's one, you know, contracts uh, and uh, bidding, you know, that perhaps was won back in 2019, those projects being stalled and still haven't kicked off, which is, you know, having a huge impact on uh, forecasting, not just financially, but in terms of project and resource forecasting for contractors. But um, I know from speaking to you that you've actually been involved in uh, securing new business and getting new business over the line during this period, um, significant business in London. Are you in a position to talk to us about that? Yeah, yeah. So we signed a new uh, contract in London during lockdown, actually. Um, it's a mixed development. It's £37 million, um, in Barking in London. It's a design and build contract for 170 PRS um, units, along with uh, commercial and retail space and two-screen cinema for a company in London called Lindhill Properties. Um, so that was really exciting because it gave us the opportunity to uh, utilise the likes of Zoom and Skype, whereas probably we would have been backing over on planes. Um, and we're using actually the same architects that we have on Sandyford, uh, our, our architects in uh, London, they're a UK and Irish-based company. Um, the SADA architects based in Dublin, um, Simon McCafferty and Cormac Cleary. So it's great that we have them on both projects. Okay. And, you know, it's interesting. I know from speaking to you previously that um, a huge, you know, you're working for a, a global construction giant. So a, a huge part of your role does involve traveling a lot. And, you know, particularly being business manager of Ireland and the UK, you know, typically, is this something that you would be traveling over and back on a, you know, weekly or, or a couple of times a week basis? Oh, yeah. Realistically, uh, had we not had COVID, I would have been going to London every week. Um, we have a meeting on a Friday afternoon, which is now done through Teams. And we'd have a meeting now on a Monday morning with the client. And again, that's done through Teams. So realistically, I probably would have been flying in and out of London, maybe on a Friday or a Monday um, so I suppose it's it's good in respect of, you know, us lowering our carbon footprint, looking at, where, you know, uh, changing the, the, the way that we do business. And I think ultimately saving costs. Now, listen, nothing is ever going to, you know, uh, beat that one, one on, you know, face to face contact with people, which we do need to get back to. Of course. But I think it is making us reflect a little bit that possibly we are maybe jumping on planes, you know, a little bit too often. That we don't, we're where we don't need to. Has there been an element though that construction is such a a tangible project, and for project updates and for site updates, you know, there has always been kind of a, a almost a tradition of walking the site uh, with project teams at, at quite regular intervals. You know, I, I mean, obviously we've seen technology, whether it's uh, virtual reality walkthroughs or a uh, three sixty video. You know, we, we've seen huge progress being made to eliminate that, and we know that you know actually most design meetings and things like that now are, are not happening on site to minimise yeah. uh, visitors to site, you know, which is a good thing. But, you know, it, there's a there's a culture change that needs to go uh, hand in hand with that. You know, do you do you feel that's maybe happening over the last number of months or, or do you think as soon as it's safe and, and I suppose as soon as it's safe and legal to do so, are we going to be straight back to jumping on planes and out walking sites? No, I don't think so, because we would have always utilised our back office in Dubai um, for a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of our work anyways. So 
I think what I've probably done is more just myself personally, so I'm not jumping on the plane as, as quickly as I would have. Um, but we've always had that support and used the likes of uh, Microsoft Teams with our, with our teams in Dubai. Um, do, so I think it's probably just us more locally. Yeah. Do you um, think you, you have the advantage there that you're working with one of the, the world's largest um, construction companies? You know, does that, did that have some inherent benefits maybe that when COVID struck, were you able to tap into international knowledge, um, you know, technology resources? You know, you've worked for a long time in the Irish industry. You know, were you able mm. to compare what was available to you at that time? Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I think as well where, you know, we look at, say, how we coped in a recession, the last recession, I suppose, one of the things that we did is we just kind of got on and we reacted and we, you know, we, we, we tried to overcome every problem that we have and don't see it as a problem, more just look for the solution. And I think I'm lucky to be surrounded by like-minded people like that, the likes of Rob, who would be our country manager, our senior project manager, Colin, who just worked tirelessly just to keep business as usual and just, you know, looking at, the advice and the guidelines and just adapting to it um so I, I was again I was very lucky to be surrounded by those yeah resilience is a real hallmark of this industry whether it's in Ireland yeah. or, or globally you know because it, it has had to be you know survival as kind of in the DNA there but um again I mentioned that uh Shaporji Palonji is not long in Ireland so when when did the brand enter the Irish market officially well, we, we set the company up back in August 2018 um, and during that time we were, we, we were putting together the strategy of the business and we looked, you know, at different, you know, were we going to do it through an acquisition, were we going to do it through organic growth um, and I suppose really we, we have, you know, taken that decision to grow organically with the project in Fox Rock which, you know, is five million we've now in sandy for on 65 units there that's for respond housing that's um 65 apartments in sandyford that's a design and build and then we've got london which is 37 million so you know we we're we're, we're slowly creeping up to the the project values that shaporji palangi would be working there's nothing on. there's nothing uh, slow about that jump from you know, five million, eight point five million, twelve million, thirty-seven million. Yeah, you know, that, yeah. that's massive growth in less than a, a two-year period, effectively. Yeah, and I suppose that's but that's um, you know, we can back that up with the experience that we have internationally, the the capabilities, the the working capital that we can bring to projects. So we're very fortunate like that that we can just get on to the, to the next project. But for us, I suppose for me, it's now it's about delivering these projects. Um, in order to build a strong brand because really we could you know we probably could go out now in the morning and and get and pick up a number of projects but I suppose really the important thing is now is is in delivering these and letting these be our hallmark projects that we can point to people to say that they're done and they're completed. Yeah and look that that's a really important one for the for the industry that we're in you know and I, we we have to leave it there for now Karen thank you so much for joining us I would definitely like to return and maybe have a discussion about uh, the project and the ICF because it's something that we haven't yeah. discussed here on the show before and I know it's in the context of looking at alternative um, and modern methods of construction it's really important actually to be able to point to a project and and 
and evaluate it as it goes through the course. So actually, we might touch base with you again, if you're willing, and and have a conversation oh, about yeah. that. Look, if anybody wants to reach out to me during through LinkedIn or, um, you know, look up uh, All Therm ICF on the internet, I'd say they would only be delighted to meet with people and discuss it. But I certainly would highly recommend it as a, a modern form, a faster form. Okay, that's great. Thank you so much. That was Karen Muldowney, so uh, business manager of Shapurji Palonji in Ireland and the UK. We need to take another quick break. Stay tuned. 93.9 Dublin South FM. Welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. I'm now joined remotely by Paul Walsh, general manager of CIM Europe. Um, Paul, you're very welcome. Thank you, Karen. So I mentioned there your general manager of CIM Europe. CIM actually stands, remind me again, what does it stand for? Uh, it stands for Continuous Intelligent Monitoring. Perfect. And yeah. while you're general manager in Europe, um, this is a, an Australian startup and, and Australian, Australian-based company founded by an Irish man who happens to be your brother. So you might just give yeah. us a bit of background about CIM. Sure, yeah. Um, and thank you for the opportunity to speak on your show. Um, CIM was, was set up in 2014 by my brother, David. Uh, he, he originally went to Australia in 2009 after the, uh, the global financial crisis. He had a, a small construction company that was, um, that was severely impacted by, by, the, by the financial crisis. So he decided to relocate. And at the time he went to Australia, he, he, he started working for a, a company that did electrical metering on large energy consuming buildings. Um, and I suppose what he realized, according as he began to work for this company, was that a lot of the large building owners and operators were using this electrical metering data to try and operate how the building ran. And it was difficult to do so because when equipment started to perform poorly, um, it would appear as a spike on an, on a report. And then retrospectively, the company would try and diagnose what happened. And it was the analogy that David used, and it works quite well, is it's a bit like trying to drive your car and using your rear view mirror to do so. You can only find out what's happened when it, when, or, or try and diagnose what has happened in, in retrospect. And it's never a good way. So he felt there was always a better mousetrap out there. So David, um, started CIM. And one of the things that CIM does is it, ingests source, multiple data sources from a building um, to try and optimize plant and equipment. And, and the, 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 the sources of data we use are primarily the building management system. Um, and we take granular data from that in real time and begin to diagnose problems before they actually occur. Okay. And, uh, you know, this is something that we've covered on the show quite a bit. And, you know, we're seeing a a huge move and a shift from data being seen almost uh, as a liability um, Mm -hmm. to something that's actually now harnessed as a threat or sorry, as an opportunity in a way Mm -hmm. that it wasn't before, you know, which which is important and it's a good thing for us. Um, But you you talk there about a lot of the data is coming in from building management systems, and yet we know that even in in newly built and contemporary uh, mm. buildings, uh, particularly here in in Ireland, and I don't know what the situation is in Sydney where David is based. You know, we're seeing new buildings being fitted with fifteen year old BMS systems. So you know how how is that working in terms of your technology? Do do you work on a retrofit basis? So, so our technology works with, with any type of uh, building management system. 
uh, we do see a lot of what you touched on there, Carl, around, you know, BMS has been poorly commissioned or being incorrectly specified for a particular building. And a lot of what CIM does is because we're independent, we're able to work with our clients um, to ensure that the BMS is correctly specified, day one, and then it's correctly commissioned. So a lot of times you have a flawed model in that you have the BMS vendors commissioning their own uh, systems. And it's a bit like checking your own homework. You're never going to do it correctly. Yeah. Um, and it works right across. Like CIM, while it's Australian founded, we have a, a, a large presence in Europe now. We work with several of the large multinationals because this, this issue of um, data being like in, in, in silos and, and difficult to access is not just uh, uh, in, the, in the building um, or in the commercial office space. It's, it's right across the large in energy users, so large manufacturing sites, uh, large uh, libraries, museums, um, any of those large um, entities do suffer with this uh, data being being difficult to access, and we, we call it dark data. But um, yeah, I don't, did that answer your question? Yeah, no, I, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, because again, it seems to be a case that, you know, there's a, a growing awareness of the importance of this. There's growing awareness yeah. that actually, um, you know, I, I, I think actually in the most recent PropTech report coming out of Oxford, uh, Professor Andrew Baum calls um, data and data analytics the grimy plumbing of PropTech and of real estate. And I think that's a, but, he, you know, that, that's quite a good analogy. It is the grimy plumbing. However, he, he also uh, highlights it and identifies it as one of the key areas of opportunity and where mm. there's the potential for um, a, a real competitive edge as well in terms of, um, delivering high quality buildings that are more sustainable and more efficient to run, but also optimize comfort while optimizing productivity and efficiencies. And these are all things that sound good in theory, but I wonder how much of that is being lost in translation. So, for example, mm -hmm. are you, your main business across Europe, is that going into newly built buildings or, or is it going into the retrofit? Oh, sorry. So, so yeah, we, we primarily work with uh, existing buildings. Mm -hmm. uh, and I suppose the, our, our value proposition to a building owner is that we say to them, listen, by using your data more intelligently, we can optimize your existing plants and equipment. And that ticks a lot of boxes in their heads because they don't need to invest additional capital. Um, it's not resource intensive. CIM have a, have a technical engineering support team that deliver the results. So it, it gives them that immediate cost savings. And in the current climate, uh, it, that's super relevant. And then around, the, you know, the, the, the safe returning to, to work with COVID, a lot of buildings now will be bringing in more uh, fresh air, mm -hmm. which will result in energy uh, increases because you've got to cool or heat that air. You can't recirculate the air. So, so it's, it's, it's especially relevant now. And it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a very... Um, uh, very good value prop for, for the large commercial office owners. Yeah, you know, and again, we will come back to the utility savings, which is a huge thing sure. from a sustainability point of view and mm -hmm. from a financial uh, cost management point of view. But actually, you've touched on something really important there. And I'm not sure that conversation is happening enough. You know, we're coming into uh, cooler in, into cooler weather. We're coming into the winter season mm. while trying to, uh, you know, building 
operators and employers are trying to make their building premises as safe as possible so that their employees feel confident returning to the office or to the workplace, even if it's on a, a phased basis or even if it's kind mm-hmm. of two or three days a week. So there is this huge agenda to not only make buildings safer and the air that's circulating within buildings safer, but also to, to be able to show that it's safer. Yes, um, yes. But what is the likely impact of this in terms of, you know, utilities and sustainability? Because we know that the energy consumption is likely to be significantly higher. Do we do we know how HVAC systems are going to have to work um, in the context of COVID? So you're right, right. Around coming back to work, it, it's all about building trust uh, of the employees or the people returning to work. So being able to use building data, like some of the buildings we work with have CO2 sensors internally, and they, you can tell when the uh, CO2 levels are increasing that you need to show how you're flushing out that uh, stale air and bringing in fresh air. Mm-hmm. But to, to answer your question, there will definitely be uh, an energy increase because you're bringing in more that that, that outside air that you've got to you've got to heat up primarily in, in, in Ireland and the UK. So um, to try and to quantify that will be difficult. It depends how harsh the winter is, if I'm honest. Um, but what we find is even even the logistics of doing that, sometimes we find equipment that, you know, um, outside air dampers might not be correctly working. So even even doing what the company wants to do or the building owner wants to do is often difficult. But the, the, by getting that granular data, you can diagnose really, really quickly if there is an issue. And again, you can you can use dashboards to to communicate that to your staff and to your employees or your tenants and, and they get that trust built up that you know the building owner or the building manager is really on top of this yeah and paul in terms of you know what's been happening over the last number of months for your existing clients and the buildings that you were working with uh, prior to february of this year you know what changes have been required over the past six to seven months so a lot of the clients we work with now are in that process of either putting in co2 monitoring and then ensuring that um that that is correctly maintained to comply with with COVID uh, guidelines. Um, I do see that the the conversation has shifted slightly, Carol, from you know uh, opex savings and you know uh, driving um, efficiencies in the plant to more uh, you know we've got to make sure this is a safe environment for our employees to return to work. So the dynamic has changed, but but I, the, I suppose the emphasis on ensuring existing plant and equipment hasn't. Okay. Um, uh, but I do see, as I say, uh, uh, a constraint in the availability of capital. Um, so clients that would have had access to um, capital to upgrade plants and equipment, uh, chillers, boilers, air handlers, uh, now are looking at ways of optimizing existing plant and equipment rather than having to deploy any capital. And that's just, I suppose, a feature of the of the overall financial environment as opposed to something that's COVID-specific. Yeah, and look, and that that's a fair assessment. Um, in terms of, I suppose, if we were to look ahead a little bit, you know, where do you see or where is CIM planning for, you know, in terms of, um, I, I suppose, the expansion of IoT, how is that likely to impact on the, I suppose, the HVAC and the the running of a commercial building? I mean, what, where do you see this, you know, kind of in two, three, four years time? Where are we heading? So the more data sources that come into a building, the better uh, a data analytics platform 
should be performing. Because I suppose what a good data analytics platform would do is integrate multiple data sources, uh, you know, normalize that data, cleanse that data, and then use that data set to identify when the building is is running well or where when it's not running well. And the the uh, the additional sensors that you're referring to on the IoT side of it will just feed into that data so that data lake, and it will allow us to run the the software across those to identify opportunities to to optimize the asset. So I I, I do see that data in the current climate. I, I do see data analytics as being being uh, the only lifeboat for some of these large building owners because you've increasing operational costs, energy energy costs are going up the whole time. You're going to have additional energy costs now with, with the COVID guidelines. You're going to have reduced access to capital. So optimizing your existing assets using the data that they're, they're, they're creating in, in, in our heads is, is, the only, is one of the only um, opportunities to survive this um, the COVID crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there, there's a huge element of future-proofing here. And in yeah. fact, only in the last week or two, I was speaking to uh, the, sustainable, uh, the sustainability manager of one of Ireland's largest REITs. And, you know, he spoke about how important this is, even from um, satisfying investors. Yes, you know, yes, that, ESG. That, that ESG yeah. and CSR, we see it the whole time. It's becoming increasingly more prevalent in the discussions we're having. A lot of times the, the investors are driving the, the CO2 reduction agenda which is perfect. And again, the data analytics platform ties in lovely with that because it delivers that demand side reduction without having to invest in, you know, on-site generation or, or procuring green energy or doing the power purchase agreements or, you know, it, it, it does tick that box as well. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, what we've seen across uh, in terms of uh, prop tech and, and all technology for the built environment, you know, one of the things we've seen is this huge acceleration of trends that perhaps were already in play, but this huge acceleration of trends. And, mm. um, you know, and we've heard the description that more has been achieved in three months, you know, than had been achieved in, in three years prior to this. Um, yeah. And I suppose that raises the question, you know, uh, as people return to the workplace in whatever guise it's going to be, whether it's part-time or or half of the week or, or whatever that's likely to be, you know, by spring next year, we should certainly have a better indication of, um, you know, how important, how, how do you see the data is likely to change in the next, you know, if we were looking at this in six months' time? So you really want to ensure that, I suppose, as people re- return to work, that your, 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 energy consumption reflects that. So in other words, there needs to be a correlation between the number of people on site and how much plant and equipment is running. Um, mm-hmm. So I do see that, you know, um, having, you know, just, just, just having uh, at one temperature set point for entire floor or entire building will change because it will need to be a smarter building. And I think the data that is there will enable that to happen. We just got to um, maybe change some control strategies and optimize the existing setup without having to um, spend any additional um, money on upgrading your existing plant and equipment. But I do see that that's going to be a key parameter for buildings, building owners to be able to keep the asset profitable, right? Because that's the ultimate goal in the next six months. How do you, yeah. how do you keep the doors open with 50% of the people in there? Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. And, and Paul, you know what? I, I'm so sorry. Today, we didn't even get time to kind of go on to some of the more um, more necessary components here in terms of 
predictive maintenance sure. and indeed prescriptive maintenance. Yeah. But what we might do is we might touch base again in spring next year when we see how the return to the workplaces has gone. And I, I think that, that the story, you know, it will be very telling to see how buildings are performing and how they've been able to perform and support the return to the workplace. So, um, you know, if you're willing, certainly we'd love to chat to you again in spring next year and to see how all of that journey went. In the meantime, we need to finish up today. My thanks again to Paul Walsh, General Manager of CIM Europe. Thank you, Paul, for joining us today. Thank you, Karen. Um, that's it from us today. Thank you for listening into Property Matters on Dublin South FM. You can get in touch with the show on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or by emailing hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Um, as always, my thanks to Peter Rice on sound and show producer Katie Tallon of Hear Me Roar Media. We're back at the same time next week from myself, Carol Tallon and all the team here. Stay safe.